Yeah, this is our last um, session for uh, image, identity, and welcome in community. We right, started with this vision of the beauty of God. God is beautiful, beautiful in his simplicity, in that Shema here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. His beauty seen in his communal life in the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, with a generous self-giving gaze at each person gives to the other of uh, the Trinity. And tonight, oh, tonight, I'm still in last night mode. This morning, it's morning, I'm going to talk about beautiful community. I want to start with this. I mean, last night we talked about individual dignity. What does it mean for humanity to be made in the image of God was the question we asked. And we said it means uh, immeasurable, invaluable, incalculable dignity and worth for every single solitary uh, human being because we are the image of God. However, it goes beyond that, um, I think. Most particularly, I'm going to quote from uh, some of somebody who's already mentioned they like Herman Bovink, so you get another Herman Bovink quote. This is pretty long, but it's good and it's rich, so bear with me. This is what Bovink writes on the image of God. Uh, well, I got to go back. Sorry. This is what he writes on the image of God. He says, the image of God, good gracious. The delay, all right, let me just wait. I'm going to wait. There it is, all right. The image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, no matter how richly gifted that human being is. It can only be somewhat unfolded in its depth and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. Just as the traces of God are spread over many, many works in both space and time, so also the image of God can only be displayed in all of its dimensions and characteristic features in a humanity whose members exist both successively, one after the other, and contemporaneously side by side. Only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism summed up under a single head, and that single head he's talking about, of course, of course, is Jesus Christ, summed up under a single head, spread out over the whole earth as prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, uh, as a, a ruler controlling the earth and all uh, of creation, only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. In other words, what he is saying is, I'll just shorten it, <laughs> beautiful community. Humanity, in all of its diversity, unity in diversity, under a single head, doing what we were called to do when God said, uh, be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. He said, you want to know what the image of God really, really is? You have got to see all of redeemed humanity together. 
all of those who have been brought under the banner of Jesus Christ, in all of that diversity, together glorifying God as priest, uh, uh, dedicating itself to God as ruler, exercising authority over the creation, in all of this diversity. Why? Because the image of God is much too rich to be fully realized in a single human being. Doesn't matter how richly gifted that individual may be. And I would say it this way, I would add also, it's, it, the image of God is much too rich to be realized fully in a single ethnicity or national group. But only all of the diversity of, of God's creation of humanity together unified, that is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. And that presses us against the reality that we have to deal with in the here and now. And that's where we are going. Beautiful community is where we are going. Unity in diversity is where God is taking creation. But we still have to deal in the here and now with the impact uh, of our brokenness. Anybody know what this is a picture of? Probably not. It's all right. Um, uh, this is, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the, the title. Ziggurat, thank you. Ziggurat. Uh, so uh, this, is, this is what um, the structure would have looked like in Genesis chapter 11 uh, when they built the Tower of Babel a ziggurat mountain with a staircase up to uh, the top when the last time, the last time humanity was completely unified was in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 starts out saying now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Everybody was together one big happy family. And it says that they migrated from the east and found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Now, Genesis chapter 11 takes place after the flood. Genesis 6 through 9, the, the flood because of sin in the earth, God uh, essentially makes a new creation. Uh, starting over, saving Moses and his family, and he makes this declaration in Genesis chapter 9 that even though the heart of man is set on evil from his youth, I will never again destroy the earth like a, in a flood like I have done. And then he reissues the same command he issued in Genesis chapter 1. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And then Genesis chapter 10 comes. In Genesis chapter 10 is the table of nations. You get this list of all of the, the nation at nationalities and where they are over uh, the face of the, the ancient Near Eastern world. You get all these listings of the nations and where they, uh, where they are. And you think, if you were just reading sequentially, that, that, uh, that humanity was obedient. God said, multiply and fill the earth in Genesis chapter 9. And Genesis chapter 10 tells about how they are filling the earth and are all over the place. But Genesis chapter 11 kind of takes a look back and sees how that happened. 
Humanity was one big happy family, and they said, we don't want to multiply and fill the earth. They found a plain in Shinar, and they said, we're going to settle right there. And they said, let's build ourselves a city with a ta- and a tower with its height extending to uh, the heavens. Lest, they said, they said, lest we be dispersed over the face of all the earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. They said, we don't want to do that. We're going to settle down right here, and we're going to transgress the heavens by building us this, this tower so that we are not dispersed over the face of all the earth. The last time humanity was one big happy family, we were one big happy family in our rebellion against God. We were, we were united in our sinful rebellion against God. And so God says, okay, we'll take care of this. Let me, let me, let's, says, God came down to see the city and the tower. And he says, God says, listen, this is only the beginning of what they will be able to do. Come, let's go down and there confuse uh, their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God in judgment and in mercy comes and he says, listen, if, if I let this thing go, they are going to just spiral into more and more sinful depravity. If I let this unity thing stand, there is going to be no hope for humanity. They're just going to get worse and worse. So let's go, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they don't want to understand one another's speech. And so it says in Genesis 11, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. That the Lord made it happen. If it was going to happen, he made it happen by, by confusing our language so that we did not understand one another. They wanted to make for themselves a name, and the name that they made for themselves was Babel, which means confusion. And so here's the deal. I call Genesis chapter 11 the ghettoization of humanity. This is, this is the source of our, of our inability to be comfortable crossing ethnic and cultural boundaries. I now, we now get our sense of value, dignity, and worth from our tribe. I have value because I belong to these people. And, and, and we are better than you over there because we've got some similarities in culture and language and we understand each other and we are naturally then hostile to those who are not like us. We might not be violent, but we at least have doubts about uh, whether or not they are as worthy as we are. And so God had to, in order for humanity to do what he commanded, uh, he had to bring judgment, confuse our language, and in our mercy, restrain our sin. Well, how was that going to get fixed? What was God's response to the fragmentation and the ghettoization that took place in Genesis chapter 11? Well, it comes in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I, I have to, I've got to fix the problem if the problem is going to be fixed. The end of Genesis chapter 11, 
we get introduced to this man named Abram. And God calls Abram and he says, I want you to leave your father's house and your, and your relatives and I want you to go to a land where I'm, that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Abraham, Abraham, right, he wasn't thinking about the Lord. Abraham was chilling with his dad over in Midian. He was, he was doing his thing. And God says, no, 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 I need to solve the problem. So I'm going to call you. And he says, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land. I'll show you and I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says, I'm going to fix the problem. The problem of humanity is the only, the only unity that we, we could have is unity in our sinfulness, in our sinful rebellion against God. So God had to cause us to, uh, to, to, uh, to spread over the face of the earth by making us not understand each other. And so he says, I'm going to deal with this problem. I'm going to call you, Abram, and, and Abraham, in you all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that blessing we find out in the New Testament is in the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ, the reunification of humanity, the reuniting of humanity under the banner of the seed of Abraham. And so here's an image of this promise I mentioned this passage last night in Isaiah uh, chapter 62, uh, chapter 61, verse 10 to 62, verse 3. I love this imagery that the prophet says. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will rejoice in my God because he has dressed me in the garments of salvation, in the cloak of righteousness he has wrapped me. Like a bridegroom wears a priest's turban and like a bride adorns her ornaments. For as the earth produces what sprouts and a garden makes its seed to sprout, so the Lord God will make righteousness and praise sprout before all the nations. For the sake of Zion, I will not be silent. And for the sake of Jerusalem, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like radiant light and her salvation burns like a torch. The nations will see your righteousness and the kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the Lord, that the mouth of the Lord will give you. And you will be a beautiful crown in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of of your God. And we read these words and wonder who's speaking here. Is this Isaiah speaking a prophecy? Well, it certainly is, but it is more 
specifically the anointed one in the book of Isaiah who is speaking here, the same one who says at the beginning of chapter 61 of Isaiah, uh, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. He has sent me to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We know who that is because that is, these are the words that Jesus spoke in his initial sermon in Luke chapter 4 when he had them bring the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he turned to the place where it said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. It is the same anointed one who is speaking here at the end of Isaiah chapter 62 when he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will rejoice in my God. Why? Because he's dressed me in the garments of righteousness. He has wrapped me in the cloak of salvation. And he says, I will not be silent. I will not keep quiet until righteousness goes forth like a radiant light and salvation like a burning torch. This is uh, the sweet communication between the Son and the Father about our salvation. I don't know why um, when I'm doing sermon prep, studying the scriptures, uh, certain 1980s R&B and hip-hop songs come to my mind. <laughs> but that's what was happening here as I was translating and working through this passage. You know, in the 80s, Run DMC had a, had a song, and the words were something like this. You talk too much, you never shut up. You talk too much, homeboy, you never shut up. 20 five hours, eight days a week, 13 months out of year is when you speak. And I was thinking, yeah, right? Like, you know, they were saying it in a, uh, as, a, as a critique. But, but Jesus is like saying, I'm not going to shut up. I am not going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to, I have the Father's ear. And I am going to keep speaking into his ear. I am going to keep speaking the words of redemption and righteousness and salvation until all of the redeemed are brought in under the banner of my name, until righteousness shines like a, a bright light, until salvation, it covers the earth like a, a burning torch, until this reality is true for all of the redeemed, that they are a beautiful crown in the hand of their Lord until they are a royal diadem in the hand of their God I will not shut up I am going to keep speaking those words that is the promise that is ours in the middle of the fragmentation that we still have to deal with because of the brokenness <laughs> that came and started in Genesis chapter 11. Without reading these passages from Galatians chapter 3 that simply speak about 
Jesus Christ as the seed of Abraham, that promise uh, that Paul points back to and saying, if, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's children. You are the seed of, uh, of Abraham. You are the offspring of Abraham from Galatians chapter, chap- chapter 3. But I want to read this passage, John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He is about to face his crucifixion, death, and he's praying to the Father, speaking these words. He had prayed for uh, the apostles, the 12 that followed him. And then he says these words, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You hear this repetition in the prayer of Jesus? They may be one, they may be one, they may be one. And we would ask, is there any prayer that Jesus can offer to his Father that will not be answered? Where the Father will deny him his request? And what we should be hearing in this prayer is, is what was on Jesus' mind. We may be familiar with this passage, and we know that this is a promise, right, of, of, of reunion and, and unity and, and oneness. But, but Jesus, on Jesus' mind, is the same passage that we started our time with this weekend from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is saying, Father, as you and I are one, just as it is decreed by God's people from the beginning, that the Lord is one, that unity that exists within the Godhead, that, that just like that reality, Father, what I want you to do is make them one just like that. Make them one just like you and I are one, that they may be perfectly one. When Jesus' mind are the echoes of the Shema, because we are the image of God, because we are the image of God, we are called and we are pursuing and that we will become this beautiful community just as God is. That is what Jesus is praying about in John chapter 17. That is what we are pressing toward. That's what we are called to pursue. 
Apostle Paul picks up on this same kind of theme in Ephesians chapter 1 in a long sentence from verses 3 to 10. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Here it is, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Paul says the mystery of God's will that's being revealed, his purpose that he set forth in Jesus Christ in the fullness of time, was to unite all things in Jesus Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. That word unite means to, to sum up, to, to bring together. The same kind of declaration that we hear Jesus praying for when it comes to us. Unity in Jesus Christ. Oneness in Jesus Christ. That this is God's plan for the fullness of time. This is his purpose. I love what Peter Lightheart says in, uh, this is actually in an interview, but he wrote a book uh, that was published last year, 2017, to commemorate the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And the title of the book is The End of Protestantism. And by end, he has a dual meaning, the telos, the goal of Protestantism. But the goal of Protestantism, he argues, is the end of Protestantism. The Protestantism wasn't formed to create another branch of the church, but it was a summoning, summoning of the church to root her identity again in the word of God. And so he says this, he says the church is a sign of the cosmic unity that all things are summed up in Christ. And the church is to be the visible communion of human beings that anticipates the, that ultimate union of all things in Jesus Christ. What is the church called to be? What are we called to be? He says we are called to be the visible communion of human beings that anticipates that future reality. That's what we're called to be today. He says it's a living sign. 
It is a community where the unity is already experienced in some degree. That is, in some respects, he says, the whole point of redemptive history that God is going to knit back the human race in his son. And when the church, he says, fails to be that proleptic reality, that forward-looking reality, when the church fails to be that reality of the eschatological union of all things in Christ, then, he says, we are very deeply failing in the calling that we have been given. And he was making that case about the capital C church, but I think it applies to the lowercase c church, the the local gatherings where the people of God meet, that, that, that in our local communions, we are still called to be that living sign that anticipates the union and reunion of all things in Jesus Christ. And when we are failing in that, we are failing in our calling when we are maintaining divides that exist in the community outside of Jesus Christ within the walls of the church. We are failing as proper witnesses of Jesus Christ. That you should see within the gathering of the local communions of, of believers a reflection of the diversity that is rep represented in the kingdom of God. That the union that will one day be when every knee and tongue will bow, when all the saints are gathered before the throne saying, worthy is the lamb to receive glory and power and majesty and might because you redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and made them a kingdom of priests to our God. We should be seeing, we, sh we should be pursuing and getting a taste of that even now in our local communions. And so the community is the image. The community is the image. We are not merely the image of some divine attributes. We image God himself who is inseparable from all his attributes. And if God's beauty is seen in his Trinitarian life, we should expect that beauty to be reflected in the humanity that images him. While each person has immeasurable dignity and value because we are God's image, the most significant way we bear his image is in community. And I would argue in diverse, reconciled community. This is the Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit, right? Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit and he will lead you into all truth. The Spirit gives life, Jesus says. He is preeminently concerned with renewing us in knowledge according to the image of our creator. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3. We will see this uh, this evening in our message from Colossians chapter, uh, chapter 3. I'll finish up with two more slides, two more quotes. 
This is Steve Guthrie. In his book that I mentioned, actually both of these quotes I think are Steve Guthrie's, Creator Spirit, the Holy Spirit in the Art of Becoming Human. He says, one may think of the spirit much more personally and creatively as an artist whose one subject is the sun and who is concerned to paint countless portraits of that subject on countless human canvases using the paints and brushes provided by countless human cultures and historical situations. It is Jesus, the incarnate Son of the Father, and no other that the Spirit seeks to portray. Each portrait is successful and creative, not because it makes of him what it is not, what he is not by forming him into our likeness and conforming him to our preferences and predilections, but because it uses ever new cultural approaches and historical situations to bring out more of the infinite variety of saving truth that is in him. That the Holy Spirit is concerned, he's got one subject to paint. That is Jesus Christ the incarnate son of the father, and he paints that portrait on countless human canvases using the realities of countless historical and cultural situations to bring out more of the infinite variety of saving truth that is in Jesus Christ. And here is, it's just a reinforcement of what he just said. He says the spirit... <laughs> The spirit is not an automated die press, punching out stacks of Jesus copies one after the other. Uh, the spirit's perfecting work is creative and sensitive to the character of the material before him. Those filled by the spirit are one body of Christ, renewed in his image, yet varieties of services and diverse gifts are given by one and the same spirit who allots to each one individually just as the spirit chooses. The work of the spirit is both particularizing or diversifying and unifying. The distinctiveness of each member does not destroy the unity of the body. The unity of the body does not annul the distinctiveness of each member. The new creation will be beautiful because there will be harmony and right relationship between God and humanity, among humanity, among all that God has made. Each thing will be most truly what it is and what is more and amazing, the utterly distinct character of each being will control tribute to the beauty of the whole. That is a longer quote. I quoted that yesterday morning when talking about beauty. But do you hear what he's saying? Our, our press is not to, our, our press in the church uh, to, is not to deny <laughs> our distinctiveness and to just kind of reach for the common denominator and say, and say it's too hard to be cross-cultural, 
It's too hard to do that. We just need to kind of assimilate to one cultural expression um, and, and ask everybody to, to just suppress their cultural uh, uh, and ethnic identity for the sake of belonging here. The Spirit's work is unifying and particularizing. That the particular distinctions of each add to the beauty of the whole. It's what he does. It is a beautiful portrait that the Spirit is painting for the people of God to be the witness to the world. Again, this is what Jesus says. Right? He says, right, they, that they may be perfectly one. That unity in diversity. Why, Jesus? He says, so that the world may know that you sent me. So that the world may know that you sent me. In other words, the world should, should look at the church and ask a question. How did that happen? How did that happen? How did all of those people with all of those differences and divides, how are they together? How are they together loving one another and serving one another and wanting to be together and, and, not, and, not, and not breaking apart when there's conflict? How is that possible? Jesus' prayer is that is the witness to the world that I'm real. <laughs> that I'm real. Amen? Amen.